Well, if you missed the reference to the farming metaphor there, you might have thought there was a punk rock band the entire time with all those conversations with the Reaper, right? So I just ruined it for you now, didn't I? When you read it going forward www.findyourboaz.com www.findyourboaz.com It's a real website. There's actual content there. The site is a portal to uh, Christian-based uh, uh, life coaching. And as I read through their posts this past week, uh, they've done quite a bit of work in helping people find their marital partners. So that's been a key part of their work through the years. And if you're worried if that was all a little dated, this site, uh, no pun intended, I read one of their posts from November of last year. So apparently there are folks still looking for their Boaz, and they are using a site like this one. Author uh, Stephen Lavoisier is counting on this. He wrote a book called God, Where is My Boaz? God, Where is My Boaz? I'll give him a hint. Ruth chapter 2. He sets out to serve, and this is the subtitle of the book itself, A Woman's Guide to Preparing to Receive the Love and Man She Desires. That's the subtitle of the book. But maybe reading an entire book for you might be too daunting in your search for a Boaz. Uh, You're in luck. You can go online and you can read articles like Gabrielle Roseman's Five Tips to Find Your Boaz. Or Harold Herring's Seven Keys to Finding Your Boaz. He also has Or Ruth next to that. And if all that is too much, you can read Mark Ballinger's Three Signs God is Revealing Your Boaz to You. Did you have any idea these existed? Is anybody surprised to hear these this morning, that these, you had no idea, yeah, there's, you can find your Boaz. Boaz uh, is a popular figure, figure, apparently, in certain circles, and it's not only limited to dating and marriage. There's actually an executive recruiting firm that's based out of Atlanta that's named Boaz Partners. According to their site, Boaz was, quote, known for his swiftness, integrity, and transparency, which are the pillars for this organization's model for service. So they call themselves Boaz Partners. Apparently, Boaz is the man, right? Apparently, that's the case. A successful and trustworthy partner, someone you can count on and who deeply values you. There's a lot of reasons to desire to be that person. There's a lot of reasons to be, want to be around that person. And certainly, Boaz, in his own day and age, uh, fills out uh, that category of being a respected person who had enjoyed uh, some success. But in contrast uh, to those who might see Boaz as the goal, right? If contrast to you seeing that Boaz might be the goal we seek after, our text invites us to see someone else, uh, to hear someone else in this story, and maybe even to see this person at work in your own story here this morning. This past week I was reading that there's something like 3.7 million people have fled Ukraine as a result of the war. Let that sink in for a second. 3.7 million. That's a staggering number of people on the move. And it's only part of the number of those who've been displaced. That only represents those who've left the country, not to mention those who are displaced who are still within its borders. But that number is far smaller. It's far smaller than the staggering number of 84 million individuals worldwide who were forcibly displaced as a result of persecution conflict and violence in the first half of 2021. That's the global number. That's more people than the total population of the nation Germany. Wrap your brain around that one. That's far, far more people. But fleeing from violence at home doesn't mean the challenges stop. 
they don't end. I did a web search this last week. I simply typed in the mistreatment of refugees. That's what I wrote in the search engine. And it netted a number of reports of cases around the globe of refugees being mistreated in their host countries. Resettlement isn't easy, and it's probably why Ruth responds to Boaz's kindness with the question she does in verse 10 when she asks, Why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me when I am a foreigner? That's probably where that's rooted, because the experience today has been the same experience even in the past, unfortunately. Returning once more to the challenges faced today, Christina Nunez identifies some of these in a post that she entitled, Seven of the Biggest Challenges Immigrants and Refugees Face in the U.S., which includes difficulty speaking and learning English, right? A lot of us would identify that right off the top, that that would be a significant challenge uh, for someone coming into this country who had no background in the language. Raising children and helping them succeed in school is another one of the challenges she identifies. Securing work and housing, accessing services and transportation, as well as a number of different cultural barriers. We know that when folks come here to our nation, uh, oftentimes they're coming from places where they've experienced great difficulty And many of those are coming from war zones. And so people have been traumatized by that. Just imagine the response, and we see this in our own news, of how a young person might respond when a firearm or threat of a firearm is brandished when they come from a war zone area. Now consider how much more challenging it is to come into a nation when you're met by a chilly reception by those who are in the rooted populace. And that reception can give birth to all kinds of public policy. New York Times op-ed last September, Lauren Markham observed that the same nation whose, quote, founding mythologies are rooted in freedom and protection from tyranny also invented immigration detention. Isn't that a peculiar thing? The first detention center devoted entirely to immigrants was on Ellis Island in 1892. The second was Angel Island in San Francisco Bay from 1910 to 1940. We, of course, know where those places are at. These places are us. This is our country. So Ruth's question isn't misplaced back then or even now. As her expectation isn't so unlike, those who might migrate or come here, immigrate to this country, become refugees uh, placed in this foreign land, why be kind to a foreigner? What's the payoff? What's the benefit to you to, to be kind to someone who's an outsider? What's, what's that worth at all? Leading with kindness in this sort of way isn't the way of the world. It's not the standard operating procedure, and it's not just us. It's countries around the world. Like I said, that web search netted a number of different nations around this globe. But Boaz is operating here from a different framework. He operates from something different at this point, and he takes his cues from teaching that we hear within the Torah, or a portion of what we call the Old Testament. We learn in Deuteronomy chapter 24, beginning in verse 19, when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be left for the alien, the orphan, and the widow, so the Lord your God may bless you in all your undertakings. When you beat your olive trees, do not strip what is left. It shall be for the alien, the orphan, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, do not glean what is left. It shall be for the alien, the orphan, and the widow. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. 
Therefore, I'm commanding you to do this. We find similar teachings through this in Leviticus chapter 23. That last line of the Deuteronomy passage, that verse 22 is an important one, as it echoes the verse just before this section in verse 18. God's people are to remember who we are. We're not to forget, and we're not to forget where we come from. We're not to forget that. And that is to serve as motivation to take particular action. And of course, we could summarize this action with this type of phrase. That's what it means to live the life of gratitude in response to what we received, gratefully responding to God's grace by taking certain action. But Boaz takes it further. He takes it a step further. He doesn't just do the minimal job here. Ruth is to be treated with kindness and respect. She's given access to a reserved water source, and the portion extended to her is greater than what would be considered minimally required. Additionally, Boaz extends hospitality to her at mealtime. He gives Ruth food and drink. And not only does he give food and drink to her, it says that he gave her plenty to satisfy, in verse 14, with leftovers. With leftovers. So this isn't just a grateful response to God's grace. Boaz has taken it a step further. This is a generous participation in covenant faithfulness. This is a model for what faithful participation looks like. Not just a grateful response, but a generous response, over the top, abundantly giving to another, enfolding them far more than anything that they might have even asked for or what you might consider they deserved. This past, uh, this past weekend, I was out driving. Have you, ever, have you ever had your orientation in life changed by a four-year-old? Someone ever had that? Four-year-old to kind of reset you for a second. They say something where you go, well, you know what, that, that's far more brilliant than the things I thought for the last two hours. We were driving down in Tukwila yesterday. Rory's in the back seat. And she spots a guy living out in the woods. I didn't see the guy living in the woods, kind of a strip of green belt there. She sees him, and she says, hey, why, why is that guy sleeping over there in those, those wooded area? And I said, well, well, Rory, sometimes uh, people don't have homes, and so they, they, they sleep in all kinds of different places, and he, he's probably living out there. And she said, you need to go back and help him. Now, I'm not going to turn the car around. Help a guy out in the green belt. Come on now, I'm an adult. I said, Rory, I don't know if it would be safe for, for us to go back there and, and help. We don't, we'll have a and she goes, well, we'll go together. Like I said, four-year-olds can reset you real quick. So I said, well, right now what we can do is how about we, when we go home, we'll, we'll look up some places that are, can help people in this area and we'll, we'll give them a donation and how about we can pray for them right now. And Rory goes, okay, I'll pray for them. And as she's praying, she's praying out loud. And she prays that God would provide a, a place where together with God we can help this man together. And I thought, whatever I was going to say in my sermon at this point needs to be changed. Because that's the prayer of covenant faithfulness. We're in this together. We're in a partnership, a unique partnership. Something that a four-year-old got. <laughs> and something that a four-year-old taught to an adult. So here's Boaz participating in the covenant. But look what he does. There's more. 
Boaz prays that Ruth might be paid in full for her, her own actions. Know what Boaz says in verses 11 through 12. All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told me and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. May the Lord reward you for your deeds and may you have a full reward from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. We began uh, the sermon here with examples of modern efforts that view Boaz as the ideal partner, professional or romantic. Someone I called the man. But in verse 12 here, Boaz is at the most a participant in what God is doing or what God is up to. And perhaps even just the middleman. Perhaps Boaz is just a middleman here. May the Lord reward you. May you have a full reward from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. Refuge. That's the place of safety and security and rest. We see limited versions of these extended to Ruth by Boaz. He's limited in what he can do. He can only offer so much to her, but now he's offering a blessing, a prayer that God might fill it out and might make her full once again. And so we we see that prayer here from Boaz that he plays a role for sure. He for sure is a covenant uh, participant. His faithfulness is in service to God's greater faithfulness, though. And both his words and actions here signal more than just the hopes for prosperity but rather invite us as readers to observe at least two realities here. The first one is this. God is in this. God is in this. From his greeting in verse 4, the Lord be with you, and the response from the reapers, the Lord bless you. The reader is on alert to see God being present. As we hear those cues in a narrative, they cue us up to go, God is on the move here, that God is up to something, and we have to look for it. And, of course, the narrator adds in there with a little wink in verse 3, as it happened. As it happened, Ruth ends up in those fields of Boaz. It just so happens. And we know from the theology of the book of Ruth, nothing just happens. That God's sovereignty is on display. And what this essence of this language here is, what's happening here is outside human control. So there is now room for hope. Right? We ended chapter 1, there wasn't much room for hope. There was a little with the barley harvest, but we certainly see that hope has disappeared and evaporated. But now there's room for hope. Which leaves us to wonder. It leaves us to ask a question as readers and hearers here at this point. How much more will God do for Ruth and Naomi? With this little glimmer of hope, the door opens up. How much more will God do? What's coming in those future chapters? The second thing we see here is that Ruth is welcomed home. She's welcomed home. Ruth's chapter 1 commitment is realized to a degree in chapter 2. And she is welcomed here into Boaz's circle. She's eating with him even, seated there with him at the table. His words serve as a welcome home to her, that Ruth has indeed been claimed by God as she has sought in her commitment to Naomi. And this reality is now reflected, reflected and echoed in Boaz's words, the words of one who's local, who's established, who lives there in that land. There's a place here for her, is what he says by his actions. And an honored place, indeed. Hope now is on the horizon. And now Ruth can see it. 
The reader, of course, is left to wonder now, in our second wondering question here, how much more welcome is to come? How much more of an insider might Ruth become because of what Boaz's actions bring about, or more importantly, what God's work is giving shape to? But then there's this in all of that. We have just a happy story of Boaz and Ruth, and it's all working out for Ruth now. But what about Naomi? What about the one who changed her name to Mara last chapter, who was left bitter and broken and empty? What about her? The end of chapter 1, she changed her name, and she had a sense that God was out to get her by design, that God's intention was to stamp her out, to press her down under God's thumb. And so she was headed home for the promise of food, but she was returning empty without most of her family. But then there's hope here. When she hears Ruth's report after working the fields and she sees with her eyes what was gathered and collected, note what Naomi says. Blessed be he by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. That's hope now seen, which goes on to become hope expressed when she observes the man is a relative of ours, one of our nearest kin. Naomi can now see a future possibility God now comes back into view my neighborhood growing up we had this big hill it was awesome for sledding on when it would snow we'd go down this big giant it was a it was a a a paved road and so it wasn't always that safe to go down it but the road would go down there's no stop sign at the end of it you just keep going on your sled just and I grew up I learned how to drive in that neighborhood driving my mom's Buick station wagon driving around, and I would drive down that hill and just, just keep going. Well, at some point, they put in a stop sign. Unbeknownst to me, the stop sign got put in. So I went down that hill, and I just kept going. <laughs> I got about 20 feet beyond the stop sign, and I realized somewhere my brain kicked in that there was a stop sign that just passed, and it was kind of mixed up. It was like, was there a stop sign back there? Wait, what was that? Is there something red? And I'm looking back as I'm driving, and sure enough, cars are honking at me, getting irate because I had just blown the stop sign. I didn't see it. I wasn't expecting it. But after now knowing that it's there, when I drive down that hill, what do I do? Stop. You know the stop sign's there. And that's the change that we see here for Naomi. She sees hope. She sees God at work. And it reorients her to a way of living now, a way of expectation. And sometimes we find ourselves in dark corners in life, in dark places, where we can't see. We can't see the signs in front of us. We don't see those things, those markers of God at work. We used to ask youth groups, we used to have this thing called God sightings, and people would offer up their God sightings uh, from the past week where they saw God at work uh, in their lives. And it's to be a continual reminder for us to say, where do we see God at work? Where do we see God Uh, God's plan taking shape in our lives and around us and people would offer all kinds of stories but there's some weeks where kids would sit there silently and say I don't I don't know what to say here I can't I can't see it and maybe that's maybe that's where you find yourself sometimes maybe that's where you find yourself today well like a great deal of narratives in the Bible there's an industry that's been set around modeling oneself after the values of individual persons in the scriptures You may have done these Bible studies, you may have read these books, 
you may have tried to model your workplace experiences in leadership after David or Solomon. You tried to be a, a great leader like Peter or Paul. Or should I say Jesus? <laughs> right? We set ourselves, we set these models for ourselves. Jesus is in a league of his own. But these other characters, we try to, we try to set them up and, and be role models. And we read the text that way. We try to experience the text and say, that's what the text is telling me to be. It's telling me to be a Boaz or find a Boaz, right? It's telling me to be Ruth or find a Ruth. And so we might turn to characters and their characteristics throughout the text. We might look at figures like Ruth and say, she's persistent, right? She's a persistent worker. And so she's persistent, and so she achieves the goal that she sets out to go after. Or Boaz, he's a faithful expression of how you might live and how you might order your life. And so if I order my life like Boaz, I will be successful and I will achieve the goals that I set out to accomplish. Or maybe you might say Naomi, not Naomi chapter 1, Naomi chapter 2. You might say, Naomi, here she is, she's hopeful and she's hope-filled. And so I want to live like Naomi where I can see, I can look at something and I can see God in it. And that's going to help me reorient myself to the way that I might live, the hopes, the dreams, the faith that I should express my life. But to land there would exclude a greater picture that is now coming into view in Ruth chapter 2. And that being the one who demonstrates great persistence, that being the one who is far more faithful, that being the one in which we hope. And so closing, I want to draw our attention to the words of the psalmist once more. The psalmist who reminds us of what it means for us to come under the wing of our creator, our refuge. You who live in the shelter of the Most High, who abide in the shadow of the Almighty, will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler, and from the de deadly pestilence. He'll cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, or the arrow that flies by day, or the pestilence that stalks in darkness, or the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes, and see the punishment of the wicked, because you have made the Lord your refuge, the Most High, your dwelling place. No evil shall befall you, no scourge come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against the stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Those who love me, I will deliver. I will protect those who know my name. When they call to me, I will answer them. I will be with them in trouble. I will rescue them and honor them. With long life, I will satisfy them and show them my salvation. God's blessing, God the refuge, the strength, the wing under which we come, is extended to insiders and outsiders alike. And so we have the joyous participation of one who finds their rest under God's wing but we also have the joy of welcoming those who come from afar 
that they too might find refuge in the Lord, our God, our creator, one family under one God for God's glory alone. Amen. Friends, let us pray.